This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Earlier at Insight 2018, our next guest made a presentation and talked about investing for your future success. Let's talk about it with Jim Crowley, Chief Operating Officer at Pershing with us at BNY Mellon Insight 2018 here in Orlando. Um, I love that you're talking about the future because I think we're at a very interesting point. We keep hearing about kind of the world in transition, uh, the financial community in transition. What are you hearing from clients, financial advisors about what they feel pretty confident about when they look at the future and what aren't they not so confident about? Well, I think people are really confident about their relationships that they have with their clients, which is really important. I think they're less confident about the role that technology is going to play and how the technology is going to complement that relationship. That is such a theme. I feel like everybody is talking about that. And and it really is amazing. You walk around and you see virtual reality and all these different things. It is. It's very exciting. And it, it all gets back, Carol, to the data that the the investor um, provides to their financial professionals and the importance of how we use that data going forward and how technology will take big data and make it really small and actionable for financial advisors to to be more thoughtful and and, and conscious of what investors need. Right, because we know that there's a ton of information out there, but it's like, (laughs) how do you make sense of it? Are there global differences in terms of challenges and priorities? There are, there are. There are nuances to how the different markets work and the financial um, advisors in those markets. So, for instance, I'd say the U.S. is much more advanced in, in understanding the client and the depth of the relationship and understanding more about their financial life. Whereas in other markets, I think it's still more of a focus around just purely investment management. So, so different, so lagging different. to some extent. Lagging to some extent, yes. Uh, oh, that's interesting. Um, tell me about kind of, for you guys at Pershing, at BNY Mellon Pershing, you know, what you are setting as some of your strategic priorities. Of course, I, I talked with Charlie Scharf and we got into some of it. I mean, technology is obviously a big one. It is, <laughs> technology is big and at the very core, that's what these clients entrust us to do, right? Yeah. To make certain that we are there, our infrastructure is there, we're available, we're there to serve them 24 by seven and that it's safe. And data protection obviously is something that is on the minds of everyone. And I really do feel strongly about that's at our very essence what we need to do and make certain our clients are confident. Well, what, what do you think about when it comes to data protection? I mean, obviously you guys are, are dealing with a lot of sensitive information, whether it's on the institutional level or on the retail level. Yeah, it's, it's a very curious because of all the fintech um, advancements that are out there. Data is just moving so fluidly across different platforms. We really want to make sure that that data is well protected as it crosses these different platforms and that we're making the most of it when we do have it and we can provide these predictive things that you know, advisors really are looking for. It's interesting too, um, you know, when you look at, I mean the financial industry is well-established, well-entrenched, right? There's infrastructures in place. And yet we've seen certainly in other industries where an upstart can just turn everything upside down. I'm curious about some of the companies uh, and some of the trends or some of the individuals that you're keeping an eye on. Well, uh, it's actually quite interesting. I I think, you know, there are some pretty high barriers to entry to get into this highly regulated industry. 
So that makes it different than some other it's industries. It's a significant difference, and it does make a big difference in the area of technology. So uh, it, blockchain, obviously, is the one that you spoke about uh, earlier today with Charlie, and I do think that blockchain will have a big role in our industry at some point in the future. So we have to be mindful of these things. When you say at some point in the future, is it two years? I know, I know I'm going to do this, but you, because you know your industry, and, you, and, and again, I feel like we all knew technology was going to impact everything and anything we do, but I feel like it's ramped up much more quickly than we thought. You just can't ignore it. <laughs> you, you have to be involved. You have to be in the flow. You have to be understanding how these things might disrupt your business. Um, what's the old saying, right? Try to figure out who's trying to kill you and how they're trying to kill you and how you're going to survive. Right. So we, we have to be mindful and you know we have a duty and responsibility to uh, understand what blockchain and these other disruptive technologies might mean for our industry. And, and we're playing a big part, and um, you know, I think we need to continue to invest more in that area. Yeah, right, and, it's, and it'll be interesting to see where the regulatory environment falls with this as well. It will be, and you know, that's going to take long. Brand new regulation around GDPR, and you know, that going into uh, effect this last week. So, um, it will be interesting to see how the regulators play a role. Do you anticipate that it's going to be the European regulators that really are kind of leading the way on all of this? I mean, they certainly are when it comes to data privacy. They have been for several years and now making it very official with GDPR. But it, I'm just wondering if, even with the financial world. They, they have been so far. I think that uh, in some respects, you know, obviously the U.S. will catch up. And w we all know that data privacy is the one thing, it is the one thing that could destroy trust in your reputation in an instant. So we really do need to make certain whether it's regulatory, we, you can't depend upon the regulation to drive it. The business has got to drive it. We have to make certain that it's safe and secure. Right. Right, because it's protecting your business. Absolutely. Tell me about the regulatory environment that we certainly have seen a rollback of some regulations and, yeah. and are things being considered to be rolled back. Um, where do you see it going? Well, you know, even though some of the current regulations have been rolled back, I think the impact of the proposed regulation is really taking shape in the industry because there's much more transparency because uh, consumers have that transparency now through the internet and other sources of information. So right. Whether, um, whether or not the uh, regulation sort of continues to sort of constrict our industry or to uh, drive down margins, I think we uh, as an industry need to continue to sort of serve investors as well as we possibly can. And, and regulatory transparency is just going to be something that is a part of the our day-to-day -day life. Right. It, it just should be there. It just should be there. Oh, I am curious because you did... Um, I'm sure you were listening to when we talked with Char when I talked with Charlie Scharf. Um, anything that stood out for you in terms of what you're doing? Well, I think the interesting thing that uh, Charlie spoke about he's several things. Uh, the one thing in particular, and our, and our, our listeners are going to hear from him a little bit later on. Oh, yeah. that's great. Yeah, yeah. So the thing that uh, one of the things that Charlie talked about, which I thought was insightful for, it wasn't uh, the black jeans, was it? It wasn't the black <laughs> jean comment. Um, you notice that I don't have a tie on either. Um, but it really is how we're investing as a company, yeah. and really trying to think about the business and the markets, and having that drive our investments rather than it be sort of a state number that's going to predict or drive how businesses invest. So right. uh, our significant investment in infrastructure and security is really important at the end of the day. What is it that you worry about? Uh, <laughs> as he pauses. I, I, as, I, as I said a moment ago, I really, I sleep well at night. Uh, and I sleep well at night because I know that we're doing um, everything that we know how to do and we can do to 
uh, protect our infrastructure and invest in our infrastructure and serve our clients well. And a lot of people have been talking about an experience, the experience that we can create with technology, the experience that we can create with service. We're investing in those areas. So I feel good about that. And I only worry about this data privacy cyber issue. Right, As right. we all should. Well, you know, and that's something I talked about with Charlie. Like, should we just, and I feel like I talk about this with everybody, um, whatever industry it might be, that should we just anticipate that there are going to be problems? Um, it's a lot of information. It's digital. It's areas that can be hacked into or found. You know, things do mess up. Things do mess up. And given uh, one of the things that Charlie really asks us to do is think about the complexity of the environment, complexity of systems, complexity of the architecture, and what can we do to simplify it? What can we do to make it easier to protect it? Because of all these different FinTech connections that we have, it is a much more complex environment. Right. And frankly, our clients are asking us, make it less complex for us, make it easier for us. And that's why we continue to develop uh, our technology stack, so you know, continue to invest in that. So make those technology infrastructures easier. Make it easier. The platforms easier. Absolutely. Yeah, I feel like you know Uber has taught us that that you can make things very. I know I always go to Uber, and there are other good examples too, but they've made it so easy, and I think that's what we all expect in all walks of our life. Ex absolutely. It's staggering to me that I think about all the financial conferences that I've covered over the years, and most of the time we would be talking Outlook, and we'd be talking Fed, and we have done that here, but it is amazing how much we're talking about data privacy, data security, technology. Just walk through the exhibit hall, just walk through the pavilion area over here, our technology advanced lab. It's so much about the experience that we can create with the technology, and and along with that, obviously, comes the, the data protection. The experience, because we talk about that kind of with the retail world, but they but they want it with the investment world, too. Yeah, that's a, a big struggle that our cl that clients have. How do they compete with this data, digital environment and expectations and consumer behaviors? It's just an amazing, yep. amazing changes that we've yep. seen. Jim, thank you so much. Carol, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, appreciate it. Jim Crowley, he's Chief Operating Officer at Pershing, outside at BNY Mellon, Insight 2018. everybody. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets. I'm Carol Masser, live from BNY Mellon's Inside 2018 conference in Orlando. As I mentioned, lots of different speakers here, and that includes the payment processor Square. They're up about 79% this year, the stock, if you will. Um, we've seen a couple of records this week. Jim McKelvey is general partner at uh, Cultivation Capital. He's co-founder of Square, uh, and he actually was part of a conversation about bliss and innovation here at Inside 2018. Welcome to Bloomberg Radio. Thank you. Nice to have you here with us. I was just talking to Pim Fox, who I know was up uh, stage, um, uh, on the stage with you. You guys talked about data privacy, and I feel like that's front and center, and it's certainly relevant to the financial community. Um, why is it that we can't seem, or some firms can't seem to get it right? Well, it's a constantly changing landscape. So the uh, rules are changing, and the amount of data that we have is changing. It's, it's ever increasing, and people are just becoming aware of the fact that their identities are in these files that are at companies that they have no control over. And that's a big deal. Is it a shame though, or is it kind of a little stupid on, on people's parts that they didn't realize that their data was being accessed or what? Well, I mean, it's not stupid. Stupid's a harsh word. Uh, stupid's not the, not the word I would use. It's, yeah. it's, it's one of these things that sort of snuck up on us, you know, because we all 
uh, 20 years ago didn't really have these files except maybe at some of the credit bureaus. But these days, those files exist in hundreds of companies and they affect our lives. It's interesting. Here we are at the financial community, you know, a lot of uh, registered investment advisors. And I'm just curious, um, I was talking with Charlie Scharf of BNY Mellon earlier yeah. about, you know, the upstarts or the people that you're not expecting who might come into the financial community. I mean, what's, what, what, would you, what are you saying to this community, right? We're, it's so established. They've been around for hundreds of years, some of these firms. And then you have other companies that are figuring out, Square figured out how to do payment processing really well, you know, versus some of the established companies that were already out there. I'm just saying there are upstarts. What's your advice to the financial community where there could be a younger company that just comes in and kind of impacts this industry? Well, I think my advice would be more, be more inclusive. Uh, what Square did was really enable a whole new class of small businesses to accept credit cards and other types of payments. And what we really did was expand the market tremendously and expand opportunity. So that was an opportunity that the financial markets uh, or the financial companies had not addressed. Uh, so I think open-mindedness is a precious commodity in this business. And a good, I mean, you yeah. need to be open to kind of new ideas. Well, look, everybody says that. Of course you need to be open to good <laughs> ideas. But the question is, will you take the risk on somebody who does not appear to be like your standard customer? Are you open-minded enough to do something that's a little bit out of the ordinary? And that's very difficult for financial firms. Right, especially when they're so entrenched with existing systems or been doing something a certain way for a long time. Sure, and, and yeah. Well, speaking of disruption, um, I was reading about maybe an alternative to Facebook. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I've never heard it called that. But okay, it, it, I'm sorry. My, uh, my current company is a, is a project that's... Invisibly? Invisibly, yes. And we're focused on uh, two very important goals. The first is this idea of individuals having control over their online identities. So we want to give you and basically everybody in this country uh, access to your files and control over how they're used and how your attention is bought and sold. That should be at least partially under your control, if not completely under your control. Uh, the second thing that we're doing is we're trying to bring a quality signal back to online content. Because right now, you do not have a vote as a consumer of online content uh, as to what's good and bad. Because it all makes the same money. There's just one standard price for pretty much every piece of content that you consume. And that's not right. You should be able to pay more for the good stuff and pay less for the junk. Can we do that? Or has the train left the station? No, we could totally do it. Uh, it the, the economics work out beautifully. So I've been... No, go ahead. Yeah, I've, I've been modeling this out for two years with a lot of help from, uh, from you know, economists and, and other interested parties. And the math works beautifully. Whether or not we'll succeed is anyone's guess. So do you, Jim, ultimately see in terms of my data, your data, that we all kind of become our own little marketplace? That if you want to make money off of my information and selling it to whomever... You're going to have to pay me first. Yeah, I think is that's, that where it goes. I think that's part. It's it, it, it's that's where it goes if that's where you want it to go. So if that's your choice, right? You want to strongly control how your data is done. Uh, then yes, absolutely, you should have that ability. If you want to be passive, then there should be agents on your that act on your behalf in a trustworthy way. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. But it'll change, right? Of course. I mean, you see all the pushback specifically against Facebook again this week in terms of sharing information with a Chinese company. Is it shame on Facebook? Look, I, I'm not going to criticize any individual company. I'm just going to say that it's a, it's a society-wide problem. And the solution is to empower the individuals. And we'll get there? Oh, yeah. Okay. Promise? 
Yes. <laughs> Jim McKelvey, thank you for stopping by. Thank I know you so it's been much. a busy day. Co-founder of Square on site at BNY Mellon inside 2018 in Orlando, Florida. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. happy to have back with us Mark uh, Tabergian. He is CEO at Pershing Advisor Solutions, uh, custodian for registered investment advisors and family offices uh, here on site in Orlando. Um, and I want to get to some things that you're involved in because you are really working on financial literacy for a lot of individuals. Tell me about that initiative. So I grew up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. We are known as Youpers, and it's, uh, it's uh, north of Canada. That's how far north it is. And uh, there's generational poverty. There's not much economic development. Uh, several years ago, I was trying to decide how I could make an impact uh, in my uh, last third of my life. And, uh, and so I uh, decided to concentrate on an effort that would uh, help reduce uh, the proclivity towards generational poverty, uh, help prepare people to be better consumers, not just better investors, ultimately help them think about this as a career choice. So I adopted my high school in Gladstone, Michigan, uh, and uh, we've now been doing it for about 10 years. Wow. Uh, we've subsequently created a summer camp for elementary school students, and that was uh, an unbelievable experience. So it's an elective. More than 60% uh, of the students participate, and some of them are coming into the business now, but uh, they're all becoming much more intelligent about making financial choices. Well, that's what I wanted to, say, to, to find, ask you about, kind of the impact that it's had. I'll give you an example of the impact. Uh, a few years ago, we decided to contribute a little bit more money to the effort, and the school didn't know what to do with it, so they asked me to hear the students who've already gone through three semesters uh, present their ideas as to how they would use the grant. And three of the teams came back to me and said, we wish you would do a program like this for our parents. Wow. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was really profound. So. Uh, one of the things that's cool about it is that it's helping people to make financial choices. And it's not about how to invest, but how to buy groceries, how to own a car or rent a car, uh, how to purchase a home or lease an apartment. All these kinds of things that are basic life skills that tend to be absent in people's lives. What does it do then? Does it break that generational poverty? Does it create a difference in a generation, potentially. I think it does. So uh, if you've ever read Hillbilly Elegy, this is kind of the northern version of, of mm -hmm, that, mm -hmm. in that uh, behavior tends to repeat itself, and individuals don't have a chance to see how their parents would act differently if they had an opportunity to know how to make these decisions. And so their influence in the way in which they deal with it is really quite different. You know, it's fascinating that you say that because we had done a story at Bloomberg Business Week, and it was taking a look at Adams County, Ohio, mm. which had been doing well because of a coal-powered um, uh, coal utility plant. It was great for the community, great jobs, good for the tax base. And then it was bought out, and then it was they're closed down, and it changed it dramatically. But what was interesting is Americans aren't moving around like they used to. No. You know, look at past generations. Um, you know, well, parents, my grandparents came over from Europe, you know, looking for better opportunities. People used to move. They don't. They stay in a community, even if it's bad. And that I feel like what you're doing is kind of addressing them to kind of at least educate them to how it could be better. That's very true. Uh, the Upper Peninsula is, is very much an immigrant community. My parents and grandparents immigrated uh, uh, from Europe as well, uh, and many of my friends have our first-generation uh, families. Uh, so people were more mobile at the time, and right. I think that that those immigrants lived in fear and in control of their decisions. 
but the next generation wasn't trained to think in those terms because they didn't go through the same experience and uh, as a result didn't realize that when the mines closed down and uh, when industry stopped doing what they were doing, it became quite different for how they were going to live their lives. I mean, is it shocking to you? Like, I think it's interesting that the student said, can you do something for my parents? I mean, what is it that you're finding that people just don't even, I mean, some basic stuff that they don't even understand, right, when it comes to financial things? Well, a good example is uh, buying an SUV when they are worried about making their their apartment payments. Uh, You know, it's like, how much are you going to spend when you have the basic needs? I think the most uh, alarming part, though, is when people see their parents not able to retire or when they retire wholly dependent on Social Security, realizing that uh, in the final third of their years, they won't have a chance to do all the things that they work so hard to uh, try to accomplish. If we all work more on financial literacy around the country, would it help improve some of the gaps that are out there? Because we, we often have the stories about the rich are getting richer, and then there's a lot of people who are just are not doing well. I have a fundamental belief that the choices people make are almost as important as the earnings people make. And I think that if we can begin to teach this as a life skill, uh, it would be important. For example, more schools teach about the birds and the bees than they do about personal economics. And both are life skills. Both are equally important. And unfortunately, the birds and the bees lead to some problems uh, in how people make those choices down the road. Why don't we have that? I agree with you. I think, um, I think kids in kindergarten should start. Be, you know, why not make that part of a curriculum that you grow up with it? Well, I think that it is a behavioral thing. It's like raising children to do anything. Is how do you get people thinking in terms that are uh, a proper discipline in how they make choices? But you're right. I mean, especially when if they've got parents who are struggling and maybe not making great decisions, it just kind of continues to carry over. We, we've cut back on, uh, on education, period. And so teachers aren't supported, public schools aren't supported, and all of these have to come back in a way that teach really practical skills for people uh, that may not go to university, but they may uh, have a craft. So how will they translate those earnings into something that's meaningful for them? Your program, are you doing it elsewhere? Uh, so far, what we've done is introduced this to literally hundreds of other financial professionals, and there are over 100 right now that are attempting to adopt their schools and their communities. Can I take the lead on it? Yeah. Because it's going to be up to the private sector, I feel like. It's something that we all have to do. As an industry, we have many constituencies, and our communities are absolutely critical to how we do this. Don't tell anybody, but I think this might have been my favorite conversation of the day. Promise not to say. Okay. Just between you and me. Mark DeBerzian, he is Chief Executive Officer at Pershing Advisor Solutions, on-site at BNY Mellon, Insight 2018, financial literacy. I think we need it for everybody. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets right here on Bloomberg Radio. bring in Tom Scholes. He's Chief Strategy Officer, Managing Director, and a member of the Executive Committee for Pershing, a BNY Mellon company. He also leads the firm's Financial Solutions Group, uh, chairs Pershing's Technology Priorities Committee. You're a busy man. Some days, <laughs> Do Carol. you sleep at all? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Chief Strategy Officer, so what, most of your days, what do you spend time on? Is it people? Is it resources? Is it technology? Is it long-term planning? What is it? All of them. <laughs> yeah, it's a combination. Yeah, we try to mix it up. You always have clients to talk to, to interrelate with. That's how we learn. Yeah. Uh, but then we try to spend time on the planning process, where things are going, where the market's going, where our clients are going, 
where we think the trends are. So we try to pull those pieces together and try to figure out what's next. How much visibility do you really feel like you have, though, when you look at things in terms of, I mean, technology, I feel like it's changing a lot more faster than we all anticipated. Um, even investment strategies, I feel like the ETF ramp has just mm -hmm. exploded a lot more quickly than everybody anticipated as well. So how, like, what, what kind of visibility do you really feel like you, you really have? We have good visibility into our clients. We have good visibility into technology. I think we have a pretty good picture. And there's so many third-party consultants and, and firms who provide you insights. You have more data than you can digest. So for us, it's about capturing the data, assembling the data, filtering, and then pull out the real trends that we will understand. But a lot of it's, you know, we face-to-face -face with clients a lot. And we yeah. pull those pictures together. We have such a diverse client base. We look at, you know, our broker-dealer business between the regionals and the pendants, the the bank owned, the direct, the RIAs, all the different flavor and views. So just by compiling those views, we get a pretty good picture where the market is. So what are your clients saying? What is it that, that is most important to them at this point? It's, it's funny because when I grew up on the investment side, it was, you know, performance, right? How do I deliver performance to clients? Now it's, it's a lot of it's about experience. So what does that how, mean? How do I deliver a better experience? Ah. For us, it's to the intermediary. For the intermediary, it's to the advisor and the advisor is to the investor. So if you think about it today, we all deal with Amazon, Uber, right? Everything's real time. I get, my, uh, get, get what I want now or soon. And when you're dealing with the financial world, they want something the same way. So when I get onto that app, I see what I want when I want it. Real time transactions, real time data. So how do we get to make it a better experience? You know, it's funny that you said that. Before you, you said Amazon and Uber, I think it was at a Pershing event a couple years ago here at this event and we just started all using the, you know, the idea of the Uberization of the world, mm -hmm. right? Like they just totally disrupted, I hate to use that word because it gets overused, but they totally took something that you know, we do, we hail cars, we order cars and so on and so forth for rides and they made it so much easier. And now we expect that to be applied to everything in our world. We do. The challenge in our world is there's regulations. Right. So we have to buy by regulations, you know, between the broker deal regulations, between FINRA, between the SEC. So it's not as simple as ordering a package. Um, you have to go through a big regulatory environment um, and different regulatory, sometimes multiple regulatory environments before you, can, before you can process a transaction or move money. So that makes it a little bit, a little higher degree of difficulty. What do you see about that regulatory environment now that is maybe helping you in that? Um, we certainly have seen some rollback of some yeah, stuff. Yeah, we have. So the new administration, I think we've seen some lessening, uh, the pullback regulations. I mean, the DOL rule is likely to be sunsetted. Um, but we'll see the SEC. You're talking about the fiduciary rule? Fiduciary rule. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, that's okay. But we'll see the SEC rule come into place now. Um, that's coming in. We just got a, uh, was proposed, um, thousand pages. Um, uh, comment period. Now we're in the comment period, so we have until August to provide comments. But uh, we see that being um, impactful. Uh, probably a little less impactful than the DOL reg uh, fiduciary rule. Um, the benefit is it's across all investors. So we're not delineating between a mm -hmm. retirement or, or individual, and every, most everyone has both. So now we'll have one set of rules that will cross all you know, from a best interest perspective. Do you feel like in terms of the financial community um, for investors, and particularly for the retail side, that it is getting more transparent? It is. The we, which benefit is a good of the thing. fiduciary role, Great thing. the deal world, we had the proponents and detractors, but it brought it to the forefront, right? Mm -hmm. And I think everyone would agree it should be in the best interest of the investor. The question is, how does that happen? How does it happen for an investor? It really just needs a transaction. Right. But it should be in their best interest. But really, does that mean they need a fiduciary? So those are the questions that, that 
this rule will contemplate relative to the to the DOL. How, sure how much do you guys think about an Amazon getting into the financial business? Oh, we do every day. He's smiling every, every, <laughs> for everybody every, on radio. Every, every day, day. Every day. You think about someone like that. Um, you know, could they get in the business? Could be Amazon, could be another large, you know, fintech. Could they get in the business? But it's not like they would be able to go after, correct me if I'm wrong, because this is your world, the institutional investor. It's more about the retail investor, no? Well, that's who mainly we service. Yeah. You know, we service yeah. intermediaries who service the retail. I mean, we do institutional business as you well, do, but, but, yeah. but a big chunk of our business is retail. But, you know, what we see, though, is there's a huge regulatory environment. Um, which, which is an impact, which is if, if you're not in this business and you want to consider it, something that uh, they would think about. We're talking with Tom Schultz, Chief Strategy Officer at Pershing. I, I want to go back to Amazon. Like, what are the conversations that you have about Amazon? Oh, we, it's, uh, I'd say it's more conceptual. Yeah. Yeah, we're not it's diving into Yeah, it's a conceptual view of, of Amazon as an example of a fintechs getting in. And we have a lot of fintechs that we work with today in our business that are usually helpful. Right. Deliver services that we don't want to deliver. We do it in partnership with integration. Right. Um, so it's been a great impact or a benefit to our business. Uh, but, there, you know, we contemplate what if a large fintech came in and try to take over, take control. Yeah, interesting. Um, I'm curious, too, about data privacy and the management of all of that. You know, it's interesting. We have another story about Facebook and their sharing of data with some Chinese companies. Um, what's the balance of using that data, making it a better tool for all of your clients and customers versus protecting that data? Oh, you know, it's got it's, it's to be the balance. I mean, it, it's hard to answer. The nice thing about being in our world, we deal with the regulations. The regulations are pretty, you know, have been pretty strong or getting stronger. You know, GDPR yeah. from the European side we'll have to deal with. Cause They're really have, setting the tone. They really are. I mean, they've set the tone. So that's where we'll all have to look at that and react. We have to uh, abide by that because we service you know, investors um, European investors, so um, it's, it's just a balance. Um, I'm also curious what makes you nervous as you look at the landscape. What is the thing that worries you? Um, I mean, the technology worries us. Oh, could a large competitor outside the space so competition. come into the space? Yeah. So that's probably a big worry. The, um, that's probably the largest. I mean, we, we, yeah. we, we think about the, the, the uh, lack of advisors into the future. So we have concerns about, you know, we're going to run out of advisors. Are the you way seeing a slowdown already? Absolutely, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, Why is it? Is it people don't want to go into it or what? Um, it's the aging. It's the aging advisor population. The, the average age of an advisor is late 50s now. So we have to generate so many more young advisors to replace them. So that's a concern that we get enough advisors uh, to replace them to continue to provide the service. Because we need more, uh, as it gets more complicated, advisor advisors are more and more needed. That's really interesting because I feel like there's a lot of industries out there that are facing that where they're just people who are not coming down the channel. What do you do to kind of beef that up? Uh, there's a lot of efforts um, with respect to universities that have started financial uh, advisor programs. Right. So college curriculum with a financial planning degree. We do a lot of work with, with some of the schools. In fact, we have some students here that are at Insight. Uh, for the universities. Right. So we're really trying to be engaged in that, in that community to help along that process. I said to you when you sat down, because I just, we talked about how the world has changed. I'm like, are you having fun still? <laughs> are you? Absolutely. <laughs> it certainly is fascinating, and it certainly is moving a lot faster than everybody anticipated. Great to check in with you. Thank you, Carol. Appreciate Thank the time. You. Appreciate it. Tom Schultz, he's Chief Strategy Officer over at Pershing, on-site, uh, Pershing, excuse me, on-site at BNY Mail and Inside 2018 in Orlando. So we are taking a look 
a window, through the window, in terms of what's going on in financial markets, what's the outlook. Uh, and I want to bring in our next guest, uh, Mark Eldorati. Did I say it right? Perfect. God, and I've been like thinking I didn't. Head of Prime Brokerage phew, uh, at Pershing, onsite at uh, BNY Mellon Insights 2018 conference in Orlando. You know, there was a story on the Bloomberg today, and it was talking about um, Brevin Howard Asset Management, big billionaire, big hedge fund, and just talked about the returns. He had a great May, and he went through a period that was, was that was difficult. You had a writing on, I think, the Pershing blog. It was earlier this year, and you said it's going to be a make-or-break year That's for hedge correct. funds. Mm -hmm. Why do you say that? Well, I think it's one of those years where there's been um, maybe some dissatisfaction in returns in hedge funds over the past few years. And when you look at that vis-a-vis -vis the fee structures, I think people are really trying to reanalyze what's the right investment for them going forward. And not only for institutional investors, but there's been also we see this sort of increase across the investor spectrum, really from institutional all the way down to the sort of mass affluent. And so I think depending upon where funds do this year in 2018 versus where investors can get returns from more traditional mutual funds or 40 acts right. is really what I was talking about and why it would be a make or break year for the funds to sort of break out. And especially as the volatility has increased, you know, you would think a hedge strategy may do better as the market moves forward. Well, it's fascinating, too, that even though some well-known hedge funds were having some troubles, I mean, assets continue to go into hedge funds, right? We had a record year last year, and we continue to see money go in. That's exactly right. So I think what we're seeing is, again, because of that volatility, traditional sort of data points of institutional and ultra-high net worth are still have increased interest, but also just... Uh, high net worth, and again, the mass affluent, and they're looking for different sort of entry points. In other words, how much capital do you need to actually meet the minimums to invest and what products actually exist for them to get into? So in the market over the last few years has kind of been on a somewhat upward trend. People are sort of less focused, but again, now that that volatility has come in, they're really looking for different alternatives and different sort they're of... They're waking up. Totally waking <laughs> up. There is, there is a downside, and how do you protect yourself? Well, it's so funny because there was a story I was reading this morning, and it just said, wait until that bear market hits us, our major, major correction, that all of those passive funds and you know all of those investors who've been plowing money, they're going to be like, well, wait a minute, we've got to think about something different. No, exactly right. I think, first of all, if everybody invested in passive funds, then everybody would just be the index. And so mathematically, nothing Which hasn't been point. such a bad strategy for it, a long time. It hasn't been, but that's because in addition to just the passive, there's been active. But if everybody was passive, that wouldn't hold true. So you need active management to really sort of make this work. And then the question is, can you find the right managers where active management can outpace passive. We mentioned hedge funds. It's certainly one of the ways to play the alternative uh, investment space. There's other ways. What kind of trends are you seeing when it comes to alt? Yeah, so I think over the last few years, we've seen much more involvement in the liquid alt space or the alternative mutual fund or 40-act space. Um, and the reason for that is, one, it's a different liquidity profile, and two, it's a different entry point. And so liquidity profile on a liquid alt can be daily, so obviously very different than a traditional hedge fund. Right. Liquid. And liquid. Very liquid. Yeah. But it should be pointed out that certain strategies work better there than others do, because if you have a less liquid portfolio to trade, it may not be best suited for the 40-act structure. And then the other thing is just, the again, the entry point where the mass affluent may be able to write a check for twenty-five or 50000 They may not be able to write a check you know, for a million or more, which might be an entry point for a more traditional. We're seeing a lot more activity in that space, the 25, you know, as you say, the mass affluent. So maybe not crazy wealthy, but more people who are looking for a different way 
um, to seek out better returns. Absolutely. In fact, it came up in one of the panels this morning, people looking for what is the minimum investment and where can we find it? It's so funny, and I'm trying to think if I wrote a note here, but um, we spoke with Joe Barada yesterday of Blackstone, and he's involved, I think, in the PA, he's in charge of global private PE, ex. private equity, right. And he said one of the things that they're talking a lot about is making PE available to the retail space. It's going to take a couple of years because it's not an easy thing to do, but that's what those investors are looking for, the, this group that you talk about. It's exactly the same thing. I think yeah. that people are looking for something a little bit different, for more opportunity maybe uh, to direct their money in a very different way, but really they've been precluded from making those investments historically. You said, uh, before we get, we st you sat down and you said, well, I studied computer science. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, how'd you get here? But, but it makes sense because there's so much technology in the financial world. Um, how does technology make things like PE um, or hedge funds and so on more accessible to investors? Well, I think it's... Um, a or couple can it? Well, I think it can in a way that it could help you if you think about just information flow with research, because the question might be, if you were a more retail-based or a biased investor or manager, how would you think about selecting the right alternative product? And so there are so many different products out there. I just think that using technology to actually cull through the different investment opportunities right. would help. So that's, that's one avenue. And then two, just transparency. Um, I think there's a big difference in the level of transparency between traditional hedge funds and a mutual fund. Is there anything else about the alt space that I haven't talked about? It's hedge funds, it's private equity, it's REITs. I mean, are there any trends among them that you're seeing a lot more interest than we have in the past? Yeah, well, I think alt is a very broad name, so it, it covers is. all of those things. Art, you know, exactly. wine. And all, I could say we've seen over time, and it shifts back and forth, that you know, one day PE is more popular, another day you know, hedge funds more popular. So it really just depends upon you know, what sort of investment strategy you're trying to focus on and what mix do you need and how do you sort of get all those assets allocation done properly? You definitely though see assets changing, you know, whether it's universities, endowments, uh, family wealth offices, right? The, they're all just looking for alternatives Well, here. it's also the, the, even the structure of your investment. Do we go into a limited partnership? Do we have a managed account? Do we have a fund to one? So you see that construct changing a lot too these days. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Much appreciated. Mark Eldorati, he's head of prime brokerage over at Pershing, on-site at BNY Mellon's Insight 2018 in Orlando. This is Bloomberg. So one of the keynote speakers at BNY Mellon's Insight 2018 conference, Charlie Scharf, chairman and CEO of the Bank of New York Mellon Corporation. We talked about many things, he and I, uh, earlier up on stage, including the ever-growing use and importance of technology technology in the financial space. Here's what he had to say. There's a lot of technologies out there that I think we're all already embracing, trying to figure out where they go. When you look at the technologies that are out there, Charlie, whether it's artificial intelligence, augmented reality, um, Bitcoin, blockchain, what do you think are the most important, especially within the financial community, that you think people need to really pay attention to and where they go? Um, I some of it's already impacted. Yeah, well, I think I, I, I put you know, the two categories. One is just, um, put artificial intelligence, machine learning, robotics, uh, the idea of taking data and information and using it to run your business very differently. All of those things into one category, uh, it affects every industry and um, anyone who thinks it's not going to impact financial services in a meaningful way or your own company, um, you're missing something. Uh, because there are ways to do things, provide better solutions, better answers, which aren't in lieu of the human, um, mm -hmm. but, but clearly additive to that. Uh, and then I think just broadly in financial services, especially in the world that we live in at BNY Mellon, um, blockchain is very real. It's very, very real, regardless of whether it's ready, regardless of whether it's mature. Um, Why? It's coming, it's, because it's a way to... Um, 
uh, it'll eventually be a way to um, keep a ledger which is at the heart of moving cash and securities across our industry uh, or other sets of information, uh, mortgage titles, auto titles, things like that, in a way which ultimately be much cheaper, where the information is much clearer, ultimately better protected, um, but it's not ready for prime time yet, but it will be ready for prime time. Do you have any idea how long? I don't think, you know, I'm not, I think it's hard to know. I think, uh, but I would say you have to be, companies of size where it can really influence your business like ours, you have to be involved in it now. Right. Um, so does that mean you have a dedicated team at BMI? We have multiple teams across the company. There are parts of our business where we have solutions already built out. So government securities clearance, where we're going to be the only company in the world that clears U.S. government securities. Um, we have built a solution which is a tertiary backup, which is based on distributed ledger technology. And the idea is it will move into number two, and at some point, you know, it might be the way we do things. Um, but we're experimenting in other parts of the company because you need to understand exactly what it is, how it works, how it changes the role, how it changes the role you play. Right. Um, but it's like anything else. If you don't do it, someone else is going to do it, and they're going to step in front of you. I'm also curious in terms of um, companies outside of the financial community, uh, I guess in the tech community or others, that either you're reaching out to or you're watching for the impact that they have on what you guys do? Well, I think from our perspective, um, I can d divide it into a couple of categories. Number one is we have great competition in all the businesses that we're in except U.S. government securities because everyone else has exited. Everything else, um, and you know, they're all, they're all uh, uh, in every business we have, we have strong competition both in the U.S. and across the globe. Some are doing really neat things. We watch them all the time. We read all the information that they uh, provide. And I wouldn't say one versus the other, but everyone has a specialty. And then ultimately, we also, you know, you gotta look at the disruptors. You gotta look at people who you've never heard of. You gotta look at where venture uh, uh, right. is looking because even though those solutions might not ready for prime time, that's where you get all of the ideas of what's gonna really impact your business 10 years out. So technology, obviously very important, we know that. It was at Visa for you guys, or for you, and it is at BNY. Uh, you've pledged to spend, I think, 2.7 billion this year? On technology, yeah. On technology, so how will you spend it? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. We were spending $2.4 billion last year. We increased it to $2.7 billion this year. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money, but we're also, you know, we're a big company. So okay. when you're inside the company, it doesn't always feel like a lot of money. Right. Right. It always feels like your priority is just like, doesn't matter what size <laughs> company you are. It always feels like, especially given the opportunities to use technology, you always feel like there's much more you want to do. And so what we've tried to say is, first of all, let's, let's not limit ourselves by just an artificial number. Let's think about how much we actually can spend and then have the conversation about exactly where the, where the way to prioritize it is. And so for us, I kind of think about it into um, two different broad buckets. Number one is the, the part which isn't so sexy, which is just doing everything you can to improve your operating infrastructure to run what you do day in and day out better each and every day. Um, no one wants to talk about that because it's not digital, it's not the future, but the fact is we provide services to you all and to, uh, you know, 13,500 other clients across the world. And if that doesn't work. And if that doesn't work, there is no future for us. Right. And, you know, across all of our businesses at BNY Mellon, the industry has always distinguished itself as being a great service provider in, in terms of modernizing things and uh, just the quality of ops that are capable. So, to me, you know, the highest 
dollar that we can spend is doing a better job for our clients day in and day out. Now that's not in lieu of creating all the things for the future. And so we actually said when you look at the additional $300 million we're spending, 75% of it's actually gonna go to the core infrastructure. 25% mm -hmm. is gonna increase the already, uh, it's like 40-ish percent of the spend that we have on new technology development, which includes automation, all the digital work that we're doing. Hey, when you're deciding how to spend all this money, who do you pull in? Like, I'm just curious, what parts of the company? Yeah, so I think it's a, it's a fascinating question. Um, because what we really tried to do this year is to look across the whole company. Yeah. Because again, we've got a custody business, we've got Pershing, we've got treasury services, we've got parts. investment management, lots of different parts. And the idea of just telling everyone, you know, say we're gonna spend 10% you know, more next year, saying everyone can spend 10% more, um, you're just, you're missing the opportunity to think about where the biggest opportunities are for your company, where the best dollars are spent. So uh, what we did is we actually told everyone to go off and uh, say, you know, what do you want to spend? Forget about these artificial boundaries of what we spent last year about just on an incremental basis what you're thinking is just if you had your druthers based upon the business opportunities that you see in both infrastructure and new development, what do those numbers look like? And then we went through a tortuous process, which we'll get, we'll get better and better at, of getting people in a room and looking across the company and saying uh, what the biggest and most important things are. So yes, no, yeah, and yes. And so, I mean, even yes. within Pershing, it's a great example. So as opposed to asking the people in Pershing to say, you know, spend what you can spend based upon artificial boundaries, uh, we think Pershing has some of the greatest opportunities to grow all the things that we do for the people that sit in the room. And so, yeah, we want them to prioritize what those things look like, but the fact is a lot of those things are more important than some of the opportunities that we have elsewhere in the company. And so the idea of shifting more resources from another part of the company into Pershing, that's what, that's what management teams are supposed to do. Right. Not just make up artificial numbers and say everyone, you know, here's your 10% you know, your increase, just deal with it. And you have to be able to say no to things so that you can Correct. say yes to the right things, Correct. hopefully. All right, that was, of course, Charlie Scharf, Chairman and CEO of the Bank of New York Mellon here at Insight 2018 in Orlando, uh, up on stage with me earlier uh, as one of the keynote uh, speakers. Some takeaways from Insight 2018 this year, technology, technology, and more technology. Also, customization and personalization when it comes to financial information. And a lot of talk about a transformation in the markets and the financial industry in the markets because 10 years from the financial crisis and so on, we are seeing volatility come back into the markets as global central banks get back to normal as well and investors really looking for ways to deal with that and seeking out gains but also uh, capital preservation and also ways for you know companies to retain investors uh, and looking for alternatives in terms of investment so um, that'll do it for us Bloomberg markets we've been live from BNY Mellon's Insight 2018 conference Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.